This is not the media. This is hell. Manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell. And on this week's abbreviated one-hour live broadcast here on Chicago Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now and podcasting its entirety later on at thisishell.com. AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, was elected president of Mexico this summer and takes office on December 1st. So are there signs Mexico's system will actually allow the change AMLO promised, like the newly renegotiated NAFTA? And the battle over housing discrimination in the United States, where a victory for civil rights in that battle could mean a real revolution for the left from the suburbs to the inner city. Our first guest this week is our correspondent in Mexico City, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy at Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. Laura returns to This Is Hell to explain to us exactly what this United States-Mexico-Canada Act, which used to be known as the North America Free Trade Act, or NAFTA, is all about, or agreement, I should say, is all about, how different it is now that the trade deal has been renegotiated and what it means about the new presidency of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, which doesn't even begin until December, although his party has already taken over both houses of Congress. Laura was on This Is Hell most recently, this past June, the day before AMLO's election. When we spoke with her, uh, we talked to her about an article she had just published at Counterpunch titled, Mexicans Want Change, But Will the System Let Them? And that's exactly what we'll be asking Laura. Since being elected back on July 1st, have there been signs of just how much of a change AMLO will really make in Mexico's politics? You can find out more about Laura's work at Americas. Dot org. After getting caught up on Mexico and other parts of Latin America with our correspondent, Laura Carlson, and we're always looking for correspondents. So if you would like to report on the world from where you live or from your perspective or on an issue or topic that you feel that you have some sort of expertise in or know someone whose perspective would help enlighten us poor slobs here on This Is Hell, contact us at Chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. After we talk to our correspondent, Laura Carlson, we'll learn about the history and effectiveness and ineffectiveness of the Fair Housing Act when we talk to, live from Washington, D.C., journalist Rachel Cohen, who wrote the article, Taking Back the Suburbs, the Fair Housing Act at 50, which appears in the fall edition of Dissent. No, suburbs aren't the lily-white places that still exist in American fantasies. No, they're increasingly integrated. And for the suburbs and the people who move there, that's been a really, really good thing. Of course, it's a good thing for poor people and those of color. Then you know the Trump administration is going to do everything they can to ruin it with the help of HUD Secretary Ben Carson. We'll find out everything about the Fair Housing Act when we speak with Rachel, whose writing is focused on cities, schools, labor, and politics. Her work has appeared all over the place. The Atlantic, Washington Post, Intercept, Slate, Pacific Standard, New Republic, yeah, go figure, Vice, American Prospect, and I could go on and on. All that stuff, plus listener feedback. We want to thank listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as thank those who supported This Is Hell in the past week. And there are a couple of ways you can support This Is Hell. You can simply go to thisishell.com and click on support. We have all the This Is Hell swag available, or you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts exclusively for our patrons 
on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Go to patreon.com slash thisishell and sign up now to get our weekly podcast only for Patreon subscribers. Again, at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this week's Patreon podcast, we had our first ever live interview in our new studio, and it was with our correspondent in Brazil, Brian Muir, on last Sunday's presidential vote that has led to a runoff between a fascist and, well, somebody who is not a fascist. We also shared an interview we did with Red Pepper's Hillary Wainwright way back in 2014 and uh, continuing our conversation on neoliberalism by explaining how neoliberalism can be used to defeat itself. But you can only hear that live interview with Brian, as well as the classic interview from 2014 with Hillary about how neoliberalism can be used to defeat neoliberalism by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we want to thank everybody who has joined us on Patreon this week and has been joining us for the last year and a half. Uh, This week, the people who joined us were George, Matthew, Nick, Thomas, Becca, and Mickle. We want to thank all of you because without you, we would not have been able to build the studios where we recorded our first live interview this week. Again, you can hear that at Patreon by going to patreon.com slash this is hell. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The last time our first guest was on, it was the day before the election of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador as Mexico's next president. The first Mexican president to not be from either the pan or pre-parties in generations, taking office under the banner of the newly formed Morena Party. During that appearance on our show back in June, the day before AMLO was elected, our guest asked, Mexicans want change, but will the system let them? Here to get us caught up on that very question and more when it comes to Latin America, Laura Carlson is our correspondent in Mexico and director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Laura. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. You can find out more about Laura and see her video work, her news work, all of her writing at americas.org, americas.org. And you can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura E. Carlson. So the last time we spoke with you was the day before AMLO uh, wins the uh, Mexican presidential election. Uh, He's not going to take his oath of office until December 1st. As you were telling us the last time you were on, part of his agenda was to renegotiate or rewrite NAFTA in some way that makes it better for the people of Mexico. But before we even get to AMLO's inauguration, we have the Trump administration renegotiating a new trade deal. So I guess my question for you is, because according to Business Insider, the new deal was reached just in time for current Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto to sign the updated agreement before leaving office on November 30th. The treaty will then need to be ratified by the Mexican legislature. Lopez Obrador is supportive of the new trade deal. So who negotiated this trade deal? And do you think it is any different because it was negotiated now and not after AMLO becomes president? It was actually negotiated on the Mexican side by the Peña Nieto government, but with the close participation of the new incoming government. From the very beginning or after the elections, they actually had a designated negotiator who was inside the negotiations because it was very important for the other governments to feel that 
if they finally reached an agreement, it would be accepted by Mexico, and they wouldn't be starting from zero when the new government came into power. So from the very beginning, the incoming government said that they actually agreed with most of the negotiating positions of the Peña Nieto government, which for many people was a strange kind of a declaration to make. Because López Obrador campaigned on an anti-neoliberal platform, it was very frequent that he would criticize the neoliberal model, and NAFTA has always been the symbol and in many ways the core of the neoliberal model in in Mexico. So when they claimed that they didn't have negotiating you know, points that were much different than the very neoliberal uh, government of Peña Nieto, people were kind of surprised. And then the end, the agreement that comes out, it maintains that core of a, of a neoliberal model, and it's kind of a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag for a lot of different reasons that have to do with what the Trump administration was having, was trying to do, with probably some points that the incoming Lopez Obrador administration was able to insert into the agreement, and then in the end, finally getting Canada on in what was kind of high drama for anyone who considers international trade high drama. <laughs> um, there were some points that the Canadian, more progressive points that the Canadian government had been pushing for as well. That's the thing I'm trying to figure out. Does AMLO being elected then mean anything different for NAFTA? Or was the renegotiated NAFTA, as it stands now, going to happen if AMLO and his new Morena party won or not? I don't think it's much different than it would have been anyways. What happened, it's, you know, one of the big lessons that we learned in this negotiating process and in general with the election of a progressive government in a globalized world is that financial markets and financial speculation have this tremendous amount of invisible power in the ability of a government to change course. So what do I mean by that is that the the real goal of the Mexican government in renegotiating NAFTA and of both governments, the outgoing government and the incoming government, has been to get it over with. Because what happens to Mexico when NAFTA is up in the air after now 20-some years of the free trade agreement and the neoliberal model being locked into place here in the country is that it creates this scenario of financial uncertainty. The peso consistently lost ground during the negotiations. Every time there was a crisis in the negotiations, it would devalue more. Uh, the, in the investor ratings go down when there was some question about whether Trump was going to pull out. He could make a statement like that, and all of a sudden you would see this, this response on the part of the financial markets that had a real effect in the day-to-day -day life of Mexico. So although many people were disappointed that the incoming government didn't take a more a stronger view of saying, you know, because in the past, Lopez Obrador has actually said that he doesn't like NAFTA, that he doesn't want NAFTA. And if you look at some of the proposals that he has for going forward in the Mexican economy, there's some that come pretty much into direct contradiction with, uh, with NAFTA stipulation of basically letting the international market uh, play the primary role in economic planning. 
So he he didn't really want it, and then he began to move more toward the center on that. And a lot of it did have to do with the fact that, especially now before he even takes office, keeping things kind of calm in order to take office and then begin to to make some of the changes that he's talked about. So I think it was a lesson in the loss of national national sovereignty that we have when we live in a world where speculation plays such a heavy role in creating value or or eliminating value in in the economies and also again in the fact that this free market economy strips developing countries of many of the tools they need for national development. That's really interesting. So is the lesson learned then for the rest of the world that in other countries that there might be activists who are thinking about ending or at least challenging neoliberalism is that, number one, if you do anything that will challenge neoliberalism, you will be punished by the markets. And number two, you've already given up your sovereignty, your national sovereignty to the markets. In large part, yes. I think that we have to recognize that we're working with different types of limitations that than we were when the anti-globalization movement began or when uh, many organizations here in Mexico outright opposed NAFTA. One of the interesting things also was if you look at the organizations that were part of that coalition that opposed NAFTA during the time when it was being negotiated and the early years here in Mexico and also country and also organizations in Canada and the United States, what we saw in this renegotiation is that almost none of them were coming out and saying, no NAFTA. If you're going to reopen NAFTA, great. This is the time for us to come back and say, we don't like it. It was bad for all of our countries, and there's considerable evidence that it was bad for workers and farmers, small farmers, in all of the countries. But there was no more political space, really, to do that. There was too much at risk. There had been too much uh, interconnection between the economies. Too much had changed structurally to to responsibly uh, come out with that position. And what we found is that it was the peasant organizations in Mexico that continued to say we want agriculture, uh, you know, Mexican agriculture anyway, out of NAFTA. But even they did not say we want to throw away the whole the whole agreement. So ironically, we have the right, the ultra-right, Donald Trump, you know, taking the position that many progressive organizations took at the beginning of the negotiations, but for reasons that were quite different and also quite manipulative. You know, the idea of foisting the blame for, for losses among U.S. workers onto Mexico and onto the free trade agreement, when if you take even the slightest glance at CEO salaries, at inequality, at the attacks on the right to organize in the United States and in Mexico and Canada, it's it's very obvious that those losses should be should be you know held that 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 it's really the corporations themselves that should be held responsibility responsible for those losses rather than some other country. So then to what degree would you oh I'm going to love asking this question to what degree would you agree with uh President Trump when he called it the worst trade agreement in history? <laughs> it's been so hard just going through this process to find ourselves those of us who have been critical of NAFTA you know, in some ways on the same side as as Donald Trump, because it's been a difficult kind of communications challenge 
to to sort out the reasons the the ways in which we agree and disagree. It's been the worst agreement ever. Um, I mean, you would have to have a compendium of free trade agreements throughout the world <laughs> in order to make that statement, first of all, which Donald Trump definitely does not have. Uh, there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that it's been negative for the populations and especially the groups I mentioned, small farmers, workers, the environment, definitely negative, uh, and for all three countries involved. Um, in in that sense, I think he's right. And that's why also now when we take a look at what came out of those negotiations, what we find is that we're, again, no longer in a situation where we can say, you know, in very dualistic terms, you know, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, whatever, because there, there are actually some things in it that are positive. One of them has to do with labor. It has to do with the fact that in supposedly to protect U.S. workers, I don't think it's really going to work out that it will actually offer any protection to U.S. workers. There's some clauses that say that the, that Mexico has to respect the right to organize freely and to have real collective bargaining. There's the, a practice that's very widespread in Mexico of kind of what we would call company contracts, but they're called protection contracts here, where the company uh, creates with a false union a contract that oftentimes the workers don't even know exists, and therefore it blocks in the independent, really representative organizing from taking place. And so there's no chance of having real worker representation in negotiations with the companies. And now that's prohibited in a trade agreement, something we really had not seen before. And the organization, you know, the international labor organization standards on organizing, on working conditions are also included there. Much of this is likely to have happened in Mexico without the renegotiation of NAFTA because there are also promises that Lopez Obrador made during the campaign and that his new Secretary of Labor, Luis Alcalde, has upheld and, and her history shows that that she has a strong conviction in terms of, of fixing the labor situation here in Mexico. So I think that that probably would have happened. And then the other thing that happened that's really positive, and you have to say that it's positive, is that they got rid of those investor state tribunals for the most part which means that corporations can no longer sue governments, not only for losses because of laws that governments had a right to make as in their own countries, but also they had this weird clause where they were able to sue for future losses. And they were taking all the risk out of um, investments and forcing governments to compensate them at ridiculous levels and, and for ridiculous kinds of things. So there's, So there's some progress within it. But in general, again, we have a free trade agreement that locks in a neoliberal model that's going to continue to favor corporations and to put workers and small farmers at a disadvantage. So is this a better deal for Mexico? Because the way that President Trump frames this and the way that Fox News frames this is that it's a competition, that uh, Mexico got a great deal out of NAFTA and the United States got screwed, that the United States got ripped off. So did President Trump just negotiate a better deal for Mexico? First, we really have to throw out the framework of one nation against each other. Right. NAFTA has always been about corporations against workers. 
And that's why we saw these coalitions of labor organizations and small farmers that cut across the borders instead of having, you know, workers in Mexico against workers in the United States, even though there was still a strong narrative, and this is what precisely Donald Trump fomented, you know, that the net, that the Mexican workers are our enemy. So if we get rid of that kind of framework, then what he negotiated was a deal that uh, that could actually benefit Mexican workers, especially when taken in tandem with this new government that's coming in, but a deal that is not good for Mexico in other important ways. One of the really weird things that Mexico signed off on, and it's kind of inconceivable to me why they signed off on this, is that there's a China clause in there where the United States put in this clause that says that Canada and Mexico cannot enter into trade agreements with China. It says non-market economy, but the reference is clear, um, without their permission. And that if they do, they can be kicked out of NAFTA. And so just when the United States is recognizing, or when Mexico, rather, is recognizing because of this process of renegotiation, that their dependence on the United States market, 80% of imports and exports or more, is such that uh, it's it's really politically and economically a vulnerability for them. They're given this clause that limits their ability to diversify in the ways that the incoming president has promised that the economy is going to diversify. And then there's some other clauses in there that are also the intellectual property clauses are terrible. Uh, there's a, a type of medicine that the patents are extended. So again, very expensive medicines. So the pharmaceutical companies are ecstatic about the results of this new NAFTA. It gives them more monopoly powers under patent extensions. Um, it gives them more enforcement powers. And this is a really bad thing for sick people in all three countries. And it's a, it's a bad thing in particular for Mexico as well. So there's certainly ways in which Mexico and the United States and Canada lost out in this agreement as well. Another topic during the Mexican presidential campaign, and as we discussed it with you back in uh, June, was energy, including what AMLO would do about the 2014 opening of the formerly nationalized oil industry to outside investors and privatization and the possibility that the electricity sector could also be privatized. I know his support or opposition to the privatized energy sector uh, kind of wavered a bit at times. So has he said what he will do about energy and privatization once he takes office? Well, first of all, just the, the part of that that's referred to in NAFTA, one of the things that AMLA said when he came, when the renegotiation was finished is that it was a big success on their part that there is explicitly a recognition that the governments have the uh, the power to define their own energy policies and that NAFTA is not going to subsume the energy sector completely into the free trade model as some people had feared when it was just being negotiated by Peña Nieto. It's not clear, again, as I mentioned before, especially until December 1st when Lopez Obrador takes office, he's really in this kind of don't rock the boat mode, specifically as it refers to relations with the U.S. government. If you read some of the comments that have come out, both from Donald Trump and from Lopez Obrador regarding each other, 
it's it's like some weird kind of bromance almost, you know, or honeymoon period that goes well beyond what we would have expected considering how far apart they are ideologically. And I think that we might see a change after he actually takes office, but again, that has to do with keeping financial markets stable and keeping things calm at least until he's in position of power where he can start making the types of changes. Part of this, again, is not making any radical declarations regarding what's going to happen to the energy sector. The idea is that there will be, and it's been a little, it's been kind of ambiguous even during the campaign period. In other words, we have to look at this again. We want to do consultations, um, at times implying that they would be rolled back, the privatizations would be rolled back. One thing that he has been clear about is that the existing contracts will be respected. Um because again it's important to to keep those giant transnational oil and gas corporations calm at this point of of the game and and before taking power. So yeah, it's kind of a question that's up in the air and it's a big question because it's so important to so many people in Mexico. I mean the the idea that the energy sector was privatized goes against more nationalist and proud tradition in Mexico. And it's also not led to the kinds of positive results that were promised in terms of prices of gas and in terms of access of the population. So I think people are are very, very uh, negative regarding those privatizations. And there are a lot of expectations that there will and should be changes when the new government takes power. And that brings me to my last question. But before I let you go, Laura, I just wanted to uh, point out to our audience that you should go check out uh, all of Laura's work at Americas.org. She has done some fantastic interviews on uh, the Mapuche in uh, Patagonia and the way that they're trying to protect the water there and how the indigenous are under a fierce attack from the Argentine government of Macri after the Kirshners have left office, uh, the involvement there of George Soros. She also has exceptional work there's an article called Security Kills on the killing of a 19-year-old indigenous woman, Claudia Patricia Gomez-Gonzalez, at the Mexican border by uh, U.S. Border Patrol. And uh, it's exceptional work as well as on uh, Nicaragua and a topic that we've discussed here on our show. And we've gotten a little bit of flack for it. And so that's where I kind of wanted to leave you today for our last question. Uh, you know, you uh, let's see. We had on Amer- African-American uh study scholar Courtney Desiree Morris, and she was saying very much along the lines of what you said, that the left is making a mistake when it comes to Nicaragua. How do you see the U.S. left misinterpreting what is happening in Nicaragua? Because many people saw it as a CIA-backed, U.S.-backed regime change plot to overthrow the government of Daniel Ortega, while others saw it as a grassroots challenging of a neoliberal in Daniel Ortega. So how are we getting it wrong here in the U.S.? It's such an important question, and I would really urge people to to take a careful look at what's happening there. I've been involved in in the Sandinista revolution as a as a member of brigades going down and an analyst since then since before the revolution in seventy nine and uh we work very closely 
with women's organizations and others in Nicaragua today. First of all, it's very clear that Daniel Ortega changed over the years and strayed far from the revolutionary ideals. It's true that in geopolitics, he was more aligned with some of the more progressive countries in the region. However, that does not mean that uh, that he really had a leftist government. The second aspect is that the government became fundamentalist. It's a socialist Christian government, which meant that the attacks on women's rights became scandalous. It was one of the countries, it is one of the countries that has uh, the least access to abortion and some of the strictest laws against women's control over their own bodies in the entire region. What's happening now in terms of the repression is evident. You'd have to be wearing blinders really to not see the degree of repression against what is without a doubt a legitimate popular uprising in Nicaragua today. And so by criticizing this, by taking a position, even though it may coincide with animosities that the U.S. government, the CIA, have had toward the Ortega government, by taking a position in favor of a democratic democratic movement in Nicaragua, we're remaining true to our principles and not the opposite. Laura, I always appreciate having you on the show. There are uh, we have correspondents on our show. You are one of my very, very favorite people to have on our show. Brian Muir as well, our correspondent in Brazil. And so, thank you so much for being part of our show. I really appreciate it, and I'm, I'm glad that we have somebody that we can talk to to figure out what's going on with NAFTA, what's going on with AMLO, and other parts of the area, including uh, uh, Nicaragua. And you can see all of Laura's work at Americas.org. Thank you so much for being part of our show, Laura. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura E. Carlson. That's E-N. You can find out more about Laura's work at americas.org. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while it was high. This is hell. The Fair Housing Act has led to those lily white suburbs with the white picket fences of your imagination to fade into history. Unbelievably, in the era of Trump, we are experiencing an unprecedented challenge to segregation and housing discrimination based upon race. Not that Trump is behind this unprecedented freedom to live wherever you want. In fact, our slumlord-in-chief is doing everything he can to resegregate the United States. We'll talk about the revolutionary power, transformative power of fair housing that frightens the hell out of the right when we talk to journalist Rachel Cohen, who wrote the article Taking Back the Suburbs, the Fair Housing Act at 50, which appears in the fall edition of Descent. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And this week's hangover cure is a bagel with all sorts of stuff on it. According to an article at the BBC Three's website, if you can get your hands on one, a huge bagel smeared with a sh- shed load, <laughs> a shed load, it says a shed load, of cream cheese, onion, tomatoes, and bacon may just do the trick. For veggie and vegan options, just swap in tofu, cream cheese, ugh, and fake, and, ugh, that's fake bacon. It tastes almost as good, almost, 
No, it doesn't. Honest. No, you're not honest. So does it work? Is all that bread really soaking the alcohol up your up from your insides, or is this just the perfect excuse to stuff your face with a bagel? Milton Crawford, who wrote a cookbook on good hangover food, is quoted by BBC3 saying, Bagels contain a fair amount of sugar, and this will give you a short-term energy boost. As alcohol disrupts your sleep patterns, your body will need energy, but beware of crashing. In order to do this, choose nutritious fillings with good fats and proteins to sustain you, like smoked salmon, avocado, and cream cheese, for instance. Bagels also have a pleasing and easy-to-swallow comfort food texture if you are feeling nauseous. That makes this week's hangover cure a bagel with all sorts of stuff on it. I got some uh, things to tell you about uh, what's happening with the Jason Van Dyke conviction here in Chicago. I also have uh, got some emails we want to share with you in a little bit. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is how the Fair Housing Act actually works in fighting housing segregation in the United States. That is, when it's enforced and what's not being attacked by the housing industry and Republicans. Here to describe the threat to fair housing and what fair housing can mean for a new transformative revolution for the left, live from Washington, D.C., journalist Rachel Cohen wrote the article Taking Back the Suburbs, the Fair Housing Act at 50, which appears in the fall edition of Dissent. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rachel. Hi, thank you. Follow Rachel on Twitter at rmc031. And find out more about Rachel as well as all of her writing at M, R, I'm sorry, rmcohen.com. Why do you believe fair housing can be so transformative? I know this is a really general and big question. It might even seem really obvious to people. But why do you think fair housing could be so transformative, not just for the left, but for our country and American democracy in general? Well, I actually, I don't think it's obvious to a lot of people. I think um, even though fair housing and and the goals of fair housing have been around for a long time, I think a lot of people don't really uh, know what it means. I mean, it's not necessarily the most intuitive phrase, um, but I think it can, but basically the goal of the Fair Housing Act, um, and there were two goals, one of them uh, was to ban discrimination in housing. So that's one important goal. And the second one was to uh, reduce segregation in housing since government-sponsored segregation had been a longstanding feature of this country. So those two things, um, I think, are extremely important and and transformative goals. They uh, allow people to break down barriers about where they live and change the makeup of communities um, and and uh, people, exclusionary communities especially, but also allow people to move and, and, and live in all kinds of new ways that for, you know, a very long time um, we're not able to. And obviously many people still uh, are not able to, but without the Fair Housing Act, there was uh, little recourse uh, for individuals and groups of people who were systematically discriminated against. 
And the Fair Housing Act is a way in which uh, institutional racism, racism, especially when it comes to housing, can be challenged. You write, though many Americans still picture a suburb as an all-white enclave with big houses bordered by white picket fences, suburbs today look quite different from the 1950s stereotypes. Most suburbs are racially diverse and even increasingly impoverished. What impact do you think those stereotypes of suburbs have on our policies towards suburbs, our policies towards housing, or the way in which we view housing in the United States and housing policy? How, how do you think that that image that we have of the suburbs still being all white, surrounded by white picket fences that are not diverse, how do you think that, still, that may affect the way in which we view things like the Fair Housing Act? Yeah, I mean, I think that this has a huge impact on the way uh, American society, but also, honestly, even the left views its politics and and where its energy should be focused. Um, I write a lot about education and, and, you know, in education, there's everyone often makes the breakdown of uh, urban schools versus suburban schools. But the reality is that uh, there are a lot of extremely poor suburban school districts and and the sort of dichotomy that made sense decades ago, um, like it, it, it obscures what's actually happening in a lot of these places. And so, and sometimes uh, the poverty that we're seeing in suburbs is hard is a lot. It's a lot more complicated in some ways than uh, dense inner cities that have sort of been grappling with these problems for a long time. There are a lot of suburbs don't have public transportation systems or sort of, networks of nonprofits that have been focused on helping the poor for, you know, decades and decades and sort of the sort of um, social support infrastructure that we, that are very tenant rights groups, for example, and and all sorts of um, social services. The suburbs can be a lot more decentralized. They don't have that sort of uh, support. And, and so I think, you know, one example um, I think so. A lot of people think suburbs. They think, oh, rich white people. Like that's not where our focus or political energy should be. Um, but the problem is that in real life, suburbs today are a lot more uh, diverse and economically um, sort of. I don't. Let's see. Um, a lot of suburbs are not especially rich or poor. A lot of them are middle to lower middle class. They have a lot of working class people living in them, but the poverty in suburbs um, is is rapidly increasing, especially in some of the inner ring suburbs. So basically, I think that there, but if we sort of, I remember when Jonathan Ossoff ran for Congress in 2017 in Georgia, that was sort of a really big race that captured a lot of national attention because it was like, oh, well, will he be able to capture this anti-Trump sentiment and will Democrats be able to, you know, tip um, uh, a a district that, you know, often leans red? Um, And when he lost the race, uh, a lot of, I I noticed a lot of people were kind of like blaming the suburbs and and making sort of, uh, well, this is what happens when you have rich white Democrats voting and, and making those sort of um, arguments. But I, I really do think that people and, and the left makes these arguments at their own peril because it 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 confuses who actually lives in suburbs. The, uh, 
only only about a quarter of the suburban population lives in these sort of like affluent white enclaves of of what we normally think you know the, the leave it to beaver white picket fence white bastions um and those are problems those fair housing is lacking in those communities and, and those exclusionary communities need to be tackled but it but when we sort of talk about america in terms of like cities and suburbs and assume suburbs is just you know rich white people we are like completely missing the situations of millions of people and, and as you point out, while uh, 78% of suburban census tracts were predominantly white in 1980, over the next four decades up to today, that figure has dropped to 42%. And you write that the city-suburb dichotomy that has defined American politics for decades is breaking down. Today, most places described as suburbs look, in the eyes of many Americans, distinctly urban, while the picket fence variety is a shrinking minority. And when I read yeah. that, I started thinking about, I wonder how much... That is that has caused the rise of the far right. What impact do you think that that has had on the rise of the far right and Trump in the U.S.? How much has Make America Great Again as success because whites see their all-white enclaves disappearing? That's a good question. Uh, I do know a lot of um, so there's sort of the different categories often used. It's like uh, central city inner-ring suburbs or, you know, metropolitan in the metropolitan area of the suburb. Um, and then there's, like, exurbs, which are the suburbs, but they're the furthest away, sort of on the outer ring of a central city. And those are, um, those are whiter and lean more conservative than inner-ring suburbs and the suburbs in the uh, sort of middle of a metropolitan region. Um, and so there, you know, there are signs that uh, you know, people who are trying to get away from, say, people of color or poorer residents are just moving further out, and those are becoming more reactionary. But those are still um, not. I mean, that there's there's limited amounts to which that is. I think, um, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that there there has always been, and there continues to be reactionary uh, feelings towards diversity towards integration towards living around people who don't look like you um but one of the things that i explored in my piece is that at the same while there's well it's not hard to find examples of reactionary racist sentiment there's also uh clear signs that things have also changed in the 50 years since the fair housing act when it comes to public attitudes um we know that living uh, and interacting with people uh, of diverse backgrounds and, and uh, impacts how you feel around, feel about people of diverse backgrounds. If you live in a white segregated enclave, you're going to harbor, you're going to develop, you're likely going to develop racial stereotypes that never get challenged in any serious way. And one of the uh, powerful things about um, desegregating communities is that you're put in situations where those uh, where you learn to live around other people and, and learn you know, some of the racist things you might have been taught growing up are not true. Um, so I guess I would say 
that there's attitudes towards uh, one of the one of the stats I cited in my piece was according to the general social survey uh, administered by the administered by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago found that the proportion of white respondents favoring laws banning housing discrimination rose from 37 percent in 1972 to 69 percent in 2008. So yeah, I mean it's so bad that that says uh, more than 30% of the country, more than 30% of white respondents uh, uh, doesn't don't favor laws banning housing discrimination, but that still also shows a significant increase over time. As I think, you know, more people just kind of that's what they know, and then they're okay with it, and that's how a lot of social change um, tends to happen in this country. And so I'm trying to figure out uh, who is or and why people and why people would be opposed to the Fair Housing Act. You write the Fair Housing Act has, as you're saying earlier, two mandates to combat discrimination in housing and to affirmatively further integration. For the law's drafters, these two goals went hand in hand. Since its passing, the law's mandate has steadily grown more expansive. Today, it covers seven classes of discrimination, race, color, religion, sex, national origin, Mm -hmm. disability and families with children. And you said that in 2017, it even went further when a judge ruled the Fair Housing Act included orientation and uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. But the weird thing is that on uh, May 16th, the National Association of Realtors holds a meeting where Representative Dana Rohrabacher, a Republican from California, said he believed that homeowners should be allowed to refuse to sell their home to gay and lesbian home buyers, which led the National Association of Realtors to withdraw their endorsement of Rohrabacher, who is seeking a 16th term in office. Rohrabacher is also implicated in the investigation of Russian meddling in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and is now tied in the polls of his Democratic Party counterpart, which is definitely not what Rohrabacher is used to. Does the National Association of Realtors not backing Rohrabacher after he said he supports discrimination based on your sexual orientation reveal anything about the National Association of Realtors that they may be a more forward-thinking organization than the politicians who support them? Is politics more opposed to fair housing or is the housing industry more opposed to fair housing? Well, that's a good question. Um I also, I think I should just say, because this is, this happened after uh, my dissent piece was published, but it's uh, sort of exciting, it's exciting and relevant. Um, Elizabeth Warren, in the last week of September, introduced a new bill. Uh, It's a very ambitious bill. Housing advocates said it's one of the most sort of ambitious housing bills introduced in Congress in decades. Um, And it's sort of, aims to tackle a wide range of housing issues, but one of the things it also does is uh, expand the categories of the Fair Housing Act. So in in my piece in which you just read this, there's, you know, seven classes uh, protected under the, under the Act, um, and you just uh, cited an example of, of how, you know, uh, LGBTQ uh, individuals are not currently protected under the act. So under this new legislation that was introduced in Congress um, by Elizabeth Warren, the Fair Housing Act would add to the list of protected classes, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, and source of income, which means if you hold a federal housing voucher. So that's that's a big deal. And that's sort of another thing where if we're looking at where the Fair Housing Act could go in the future, I think it's uh, 
it's really um, good to know that uh, that po- powerful politicians like Elizabeth Warren are seeing the need to add more groups under the Protection of the Fair Housing Act, um, precisely for things like this. Uh, and and I guess to get to your question, um, you know, people have always said there have always been people, including <laughs> Secretary Ben Carson, um, who've said, well, things like the Fair Housing Act, which you know impose impose anti discrimination rules on um, landlords and and communities associations stuff like that. Uh, that tramples the rights of property owners and and America needs to respect the rights of people to, um, you know, do whatever they want. And, and a common, they would say a lot, the, a common phrase was, Oh, well, the fair housing act just represents reverse discrimination and and it's discriminating against people who want to live in the way that they want to live. And, and, you know, those kinds of arguments. Um, And so, there are people today very much who still make arguments that the Fair Housing Act would just weaken property property rights of homeowners. Um, but, you know, I think that those arguments are not uh, super compelling, personally. Right. But, and, and so the, the logic of the right isn't that they are anti-integration or anti-fair housing or that they support segregation, but they are against the government imposing anything on anyone, even if that leads to integration and the end of segregation. Is the public debate yeah. then in those terms as a society? Are are we more, is the is the argument then, are we more anti-segregation or anti-government? What we view more as a threat, racial segregation or government intrusion? Or is there something else that you think is at the heart of this debate that that is all trying to obfuscate, that, that, that there's something else that we're being distracted by? Or do you think that really is the heart of the debate? Well, I actually think, um, and it was interesting because uh, Walter Mondale, the former vice president and the senator who co-authored the Fair Housing Act, he actually wrote uh, op-ed of the New York Times this year about um, the law, you know, that he authored 50 years ago, because this is the 50th anniversary, which is also why I wrote the piece. Um, and I think while anti-segregation was a key reason for uh, the Fair Housing Act, you know, passage is one of the key things behind it. It's actually something that a lot of people don't really, we often, the shorthand for the Fair Housing Act often just refers to its first, uh, for, to, to its one plank, which is saying, oh, it's an anti-discrimination law. Um, but, but you know, desegregation uh, is a lot more than just anti-discrimination because desegregation, um, it puts an affirmative responsibility on the government to do this thing, um, there are, so and that's another part of the piece that I explore, but part of the Fair Housing Act is saying, you know, if you are a recipient of federal housing, federal funds for housing, um, part of the, part of the deal under the Fair Housing Act of getting that money is, you know, you have to take affirmative steps to reduce legacy of government sponsored segregation. And so that's, that's really important, but also as many people know, uh, that that was not that was kind of ignored for a really long time. Lots of people did not do 
comply with that part of the law, and that part of the law wasn't really enforced very hard by the government either, by the federal government. Um, so part of the strengthening of the act that happened under the Obama administration was kind of beefing up the enforcement for that component, saying it both um, gave local communities more tools and resources to comply with the affirmatively furthering fair housing uh, stipulation rule, and it also gave the federal government more teeth to enforce it. Um, so I guess uh, to get back to your question, I apologize for getting a little off. Um, I think that there is there is an anti-government sentiment in opponents of the Fair Housing Act. I think there's a lot of, you know, Ben Carson wrote an op-ed uh, the year before he joined the Trump administration where he called the Affirmatively Fair Housing Act uh, affirmatively, um, affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, um, social engineering. And, and, you know, there's a lot of distrust to the idea that the federal government can uh, use federal civil rights law to, um, you know, better society. Uh, I think that they can. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of evidence that they can. Um, but there's certainly uh, opponents to uh, opponents to integration will say will often use arguments that they just don't want the government involved. But I think there's also a lot of evidence that they are also opposed to integration. Um, you know, they both both things. There's lots of evidence for even if they don't come out and explicitly identify as a segregationist, they uh, will just use sort of freedom and liberty type rhetoric to justify that sort of um, stance. And on the front page of today's New York Times, there is actually a story about housing and housing subsidies. Uh, headline market hot section eight tenants are shown the door, mm. wherein they show that in uh, the Washington Boston corridor of uh, metropolitan areas, a lot of uh, people who were uh, having trouble affording housing were moving t- into Philadelphia. That led uh, rents to go up in Philadelphia, and now their Section 8 vouchers aren't fulfilling their rent, and they're being pushed out again, showing how our housing policy fails on numerous occasions for people. And you point out that new research has focused on the increase in neighborhoods with concentrations of poverty. One academic documented a steep increase in the number of high-poverty neighborhoods with the number of people living in them almost doubling from 7.2 million in 2000 to 13.8 million by 2015. Mm-hmm. Another researcher found there's been a 20% increase in neighborhood segregation by income across the country between 1980 and, or 1990 and 2010. Now, we often hear in the media and from politicians concerns over inequality. That seems to have been a real talking point, especially for the Democrats over the last uh, six to eight years. Why don't we hear concerns over growing segregation as part of that inequality or as creating it? Why do you think the focus is on inequality and there seems to be blinders when it comes to segregation? Well, I agree. (laughs) Definitely agree with that. Um, I think that there is, I think that for a lot of people, segregation as a problem really did fall off the map of our, you know, there sort of was a really widespread um, kind of complacency that this is how things are. This is how it's going to be. Oh, we, you know, 
Brown v. Board of Education, which is one of the most um, significant decisions in American history, which everybody learns about in school, uh, we all we all learn that you know separate can never be equal. That uh, the arguments for um, segregated schools were rejected, um, and but then we all also sort of learned well there was this effort to desegregate schools um, was met with backlash. There was resistance. Um, one of the most, one of the best books I've read in a long time, uh, which I highly recommend to anyone listening to the show, is, is called Why Busing Failed. It came out in 2016. It's by a historian named Matthew Delmont. And what he did was he looked at the media coverage of, of busing to desegregate schools um, during that period. And uh, what he found was, you know, <laughs> the media very much um, put all of its centered, the vast majority of its coverage on the very few places where there was actually sort of uh, major, major backlash, Boston being one of them. Um, but the thing was, the vast majority of places that actually implemented desegregation while there might have been initial resistance at first, most people actually adjusted and it became sort of a normal way of life without much, um, you know, trouble or issues. That doesn't mean that there was no uh, racism in, in schools or there was not problems that continued. But the the common, um, pu- the, the, pu- the common public conception of what busing worked, what busing uh was like in this country when we tried it. Everyone thinks of Boston and everyone points to Boston, but Boston was by by and large the exception, not the norm everywhere. Um, and so that's a really good book I recommend it. But I think uh, the larger point is that um, after 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 sort of school desegregation, after school started resegregating, you got a lot more conservatives on uh, federal courts who started uh, lifting school districts from their mandates um, after 1970. In the late 1970s, the Supreme Court made it harder for uh, school metropolitan areas to um, desegregate because they said you would have to prove intentional discrimination, which is a much higher bar to prove. Um, basically, I think a lot of people just kind of uh said well okay this is too hard let's let's we're not going to be able to do anything and and so a lot of people's focus including on the left just sort of moved to other um other systemic issues i mean people still recognize that systemic racism was a problem but there was uh you know feeling well we 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 can't convince whites aren't going to move on this issue we're not going to we just won't succeed so let's Let's focus on, you know, making separate, make, let's focus on making separate but equal work. We can, you know, try to just revitalize these communities. We'll, we'll pour in investment. We'll, you know, we'll figure out a way and sort of like dogged determination to, to make, to, to sort of uh, not worry about that issue anymore because it seems so hard. But the problem is, as we've seen, you can't just do that because the, uh, there are, um, the harms of segregation and the impacts of it, they're not going away and they've only gotten worse. Uh, and um, that's not thats not to say you don't focus on investing in communities where people live, but 
it's just, it was sort of, um, it was a bit of a fantasy to think that this could really stay off the radar for so long if, if we wanted, if we are serious about addressing um, systemic injustice and discrimination and racial caste in this country. One last question for you, uh, Rachel. We have been speaking to journalist Rachel Cohn, who is talking to us live from Washington, D.C. She wrote the article, Taking Back the Suburbs, the Fair Housing Act at 50, which appears in the fall edition of Dissent. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at RMC031. And you can find out more about Rachel as well as all of her writing at rmcohen.com. One last question for you, Rachel, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. (laughs) You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that ultimately an enforced and expanded Fair Housing Act would transform much more than just housing or even the neighborhoods, schools, and communities around it. Integrating U.S. cities and suburbs could reshape the wider political landscape, opening up new places to organize, creating new multiracial polities, amenable to progressive ideas and building a United States in which progressive groups are not confined to dense urban quarters and pitted against a mass of white suburbanites. In the America envisioned by the Fair Housing Act, the left can build power anywhere. Time will tell if its vision can be made reality. So my question for you is, how much is the Fair Housing Act a threat to the right? How much is fair housing a threat to the right? Oh, I think it's definitely a threat to the right. <laughs> uh, I think that um, I think the right has does flourish when it can be uh, exclusionary and keeping people out and, and allowing you know reactionary ideas to fester and grow and strengthen. And I think um, breaking down those kinds of barriers and uh, pushing for more inclusive societies and 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 uh is is it messes up their whole game plan and uh i think we've seen that and that's why you know a lot of the politics in um central cities which are more which are extremely diverse and uh with immigrants and people of color and all different racial incomes um and and i just want to be clear it's not that i think their uh cities are you know, bastions of, of happy equality. Cause they're not, you know, I, uh, there's tons of, um, there's, there's tons of work that still needs to be done even in places that are diverse, but you certainly see, uh, vastly different attitudes towards, uh, helping and caring and protecting people who don't look like you when in, in, that are um, diverse, and I think we need to understand that uh, the the racial and demo- the demographic makeup of our country doesn't look like it does in the 1950s, and we cannot continue to talk about poverty and inequality with this urban suburban frame because it doesn't match what like there are working. Well, there are people of color, there are immigrants in suburbs all over the country. And uh, if we refuse to adapt our language, we're going to we're going to miss a lot of the problems and figure out how to help a lot of the people who need, uh, you know, 
to be not just helped, but also organized and, and part of the movement that I think um, people are trying to build together. Well, I hope that uh, those people can get that help because with a slumlord in the White House, I'm not betting that they're going to get a lot of help from the government. Thank you, Rachel, for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. And fantastic writing at Descent. And uh, you've been writing more about the Fair Housing Act and fair housing in general recently. And people should go to your website again, rmcohen.com, so they can find out more. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you very much. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. It's time for listener feedback. Matt writes us at chuck at thisishell.com to tell us about a past guest. You had Ed Bermilla on a few months ago talking about the Australian detention camps, which was a great interview. And I wanted to let you know he just wrote another piece on the recent uh, Jason Van Dyke verdict. That's the cop who was found uh, guilty of second degree murder of Laquan McDonald here in Chicago this week. Matt then sends a link to Ed's article at The Nation, cops usually get away with murder. What was different in Chicago? When there is the will to seriously prosecute an officer, the public can hold the police accountable. Matt continues, I'd love to hear Ed back on This Is Hell, but even if it's not doable, I thought you might want to share this piece with your listener. So in Ed's article, he asks, what made the Van Dyke trial different? And Ed argues, first, the office of the Cook County State's attorney showed the political will to prosecute the case in a legitimate trial rather than one tilted to favor Officer Van Dyke. Second, the blue wall of silence was pierced by prosecutors' insistence on charging Van Dyke's fellow officers with attempting a cover-up. The decision to hold officers accountable for false statements in a separate trial meant that Van Dyke's colleagues were careful in their testimony at at his trial. Rather than endorsing his fictional version of events wholeheartedly, which would be typical of Chicago Police Department uh, officers, they testified Justified as instructed by their own attorneys with their own interests in mind. Accordingly, the jurors were exposed to what could best be described as lukewarm endorsements for other officers of Van Dyke's version of events. In other words, Ed seems to be saying that the vaunted code of silence the police adhere to forever has finally been cracked, at least this one time. Finally, we are holding police accountable for lying in cases of police violence and killings. Finally. And this is how law and disorder correspondent Flint Taylor also has a new article on Laquan McDonald uh, case. It's at Truth Out. It's called The Power of Public Outrage, Laquan McDonald's Place in History. Flint's new book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, is now scheduled to be released in February. But we're lucky enough to get a couple of advanced copies this week and look for one of them to be given away as the prize for winning the question from hell in the very near future. As you know, Flint's the guy who busted the Chicago Police Department for assassinating Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and who busted uh, cop John Burge for torture. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell is a very limited uh, promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. This week, thanks for sharing goes out to, first, the ton of people who shared our online-only interview with our Brazil correspondent, Brian Muir, on last week's presidential vote. And if you haven't heard it or read the vicious vicious comments we got about posting it from people who want a return to a military dictatorship in Brazil because otherwise they believe the country will be overrun by communists. You know, communists like Lula da Silva who worked with the right while he was in office and implemented some of their neoliberal policies which pissed off the communists. So thanks for sharing our live interview with uh, Brian. Goes out to Renato, Selma, Ricardo, Monica, Fatima, Roseanne, Leandro, Marco, Sonia, 
Sandro B, Sandro Q, Adriano Sida Silvana, Brew, Grassa, Tiago Panchito, Moro, Gilvania, Adelson, Maria, Gilberto, Rita, Ward, Branca, and Nick. Thanks to everyone who shared our interview last week with Aaron Timms on how liberalism caused today's rise of fascism. Thanks to Dennis, Julie, Black Rose Book Distro, Fergus, John James, and the dozens of people who shared anonymously. And thanks to the people who shared our interview with Eleanor Penny about Steve Bannon's plan for a global wave of white nationalism. Thanks to Jeffrey, Try, and Rob, and all the people, again, who shared anonymously. And finally, thanks for sharing goes out to Jesse and, as always, Gorilla Gramophonics. Thanks to everybody for sharing This Is Hell this week. We truly, truly appreciate it. Don't forget, This Is Hell office hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by, I'll give you some This Is Hell advertising uh, stickers. And if I remember, I'll also give you a show-related book. If you want to make certain... Uh, uh, live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. And if you want to make certain that capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can do that. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Thanks this week goes out to the people who supported us. Ian, who wants the newly redesigned This Is Hell global T-shirt, the logo, logo of which looks like we're an international organization of evil. I said looks like. And the intense tithing-like commitment of kilter all right that's about it uh alex do we know anything about next week's show yet no all right then good this week's hangover cure was a bagel with a lot of stuff in it i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz follow us on twitter at this is hell radio like us on facebook facebook.com slash this is hell radio and sign up for us uh sign up to subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com Slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Oh, Omar (laughs) butts. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.